All right. 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, as we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, last week we left off with wives and husbands and the structure of marriage and the role of women and the role of men. And uh, the six verses for the women, with Sarah being the prototype of the amazing wife that uh, she was for her husband, Abraham, the father of faith. And then the men being told to dwell with their wives with understanding and to be sensitive to their wives and to, uh, because we're joint heirs together. And we got a lot of good application out of that last week. I was very pleased with how the study went. And then tonight as we pick it up, we move from the marriage and the home to church and life in humanity. So we pick it up in verse 8. And again, bear in mind, Peter is writing to those believers who are suffering various trials, who have been displaced because of their faith in various persecutions around 60 AD, about the time that Caesar Nero is attacking the church and persecuting the church. So he says this, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one, an- one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So the Holy Spirit gives this exhortation and this instruction to be of one mind, key thought in verse 8, and not returning evil for evil, verse 9. And then the passage is going to be affirmed and confirmed through Old Testament scriptures as a principle for what's being told to us here in this Peter, uh, this epistle of Peter. So be of one mind. Now, this is interesting because in, when Paul the Apostle wrote the Ephesians, he said, endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, I've been talking about this for a couple of weeks, and it's, it's appropriate, it's contextual. But to endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit. See, Christ is not divided. We talked about this last week in the marriage, that the husband and wife should be unified. Christ is not divided. Christ isn't yes and no, or, but he's yes, yes, or no, no. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or as we were singing earlier, all of your promises are yes and amen. Okay? So the mind of Christ is not divided. When we think about the mind of the Lord for an individual, and we talked about this Saturday night, where if Satan's divided against himself, how can he stand as a divided house can't stand and a divided kingdom can't stand? Many of you are here for that study. So if our heart is undivided and right with the Lord, and we have the mind of the Lord, we're going to overflow in that with the things that the Lord has for us. So we're going to be in unity with the Lord. So as we go out in our world, we're going to be in unity of one mind with the Lord. We're going to see things in our world the way the Lord sees them, in our home, in our marriages, if we're married. And we're just going to, we're going to have the mind of the Lord. I pray for the mind of the Lord. I pray to have the mind of the Spirit and the mind of the Lord, which are one and the same. And the Bible refers to both distinctively and yet in their unified understanding for us. But to be of one mind. So if we think, first of all, that as we spend time with the Lord, reading his word and taking time to pray, that when we come out of that time, Ideally, in the morning, we're going to have the mind of the Lord, and we're going to see things like, oh, that's the Lord, or, man, don't take that. This is, Lord, give me wisdom, and you're going to feel connected. But you're going to have the mind of the Lord. That's the idea. For in the Lord's Prayer, it's like, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So right there in the Lord's Prayer, teach us to pray. That's how we pray. We're acknowledging that God's on the throne, and he has a will coming from heaven for our lives here on earth. That puts us in unity with the mind of the Lord as we're teachable and correctable in that time with the Lord and God's word is searching us and reproving us and guiding us and directing us and all those things. So 
we come out of that time with the Lord and we have the mind of the Lord. And we should bring that into our home. We should bring it into any fellowship we have with other believers. So if we work in a Christian organization, like a Christian school or a church, ideally it'd be great to have five employees or 50 employees or 500 employees of a ministry show up and collectively have been with the Lord and have the mind of the Lord, it'll make business a lot, go a lot better, right? Things will go a lot smoother if people have been seeking the Lord, humbling themselves before the Lord. They're going to be fruitful. There, there's, there's going to be unity. But here's the thing about the difference between the church, the kingdom of God, and the world. The church already has unity. This is the key thought. God's, like I said, Christ isn't divided. So anytime there's leadership, I mentioned this last week, and we're praying and there's not agreement it's for us to figure out before the Lord because there is a mind of the Lord. So it, it's not about like the great basketball coach, John Wooden used to say, it's not about my way, but the best way. And in the church, we'd say it's not about Joey's way, the senior pastor's way, or the associate pastor's way, or the youth pastor's way, or what all the smart deacons think. It's what is the Lord's will? Throughout the New Testament, we see this. In the book of Acts, they sought the mind of the Lord. They would fast and pray to appoint leaders in the church. They collectively came together, and they're of one accord and of one mind. We even see that in Acts chapter 1, even before the day of Pentecost, that they're of one accord and one mind. So when Peter's being led by the Holy Spirit, saying to these believers who are going through hard times, and it's hard to think straight sometimes when you're stressed, when you've been displaced from your home, and you've been displaced from your world, and you've been displaced from everything you know, it's easy for the wheels to come off. You've lost your calibration. We talked about Daniel being in Babylon as an example of that, or Esther growing up in a foreign country when she's a Jew, but growing up in the Medo-Persian Empire. When you're not in the, when you're out of your comfort zone and things are out of your wheelhouse, as they say in the shipping industry, then you can be discombobulated, and you, you start to not think straight. You Luke and I were talking about this today, that the more stressful something is, the less likely we'll think straight. When I was at the Red Cross uh, training years ago at Anaheim Convention Center, and General Henri, who was the director of all the Katrina relief, spoke to 2,000 ministers and community and civic leaders, fire chiefs and stuff. He said, when bad things happen, and this is exactly how he said it, stupid people get stupider. Average people get stupid. Smart people get average. That when there's stress, you don't think clearly. So in a stressful situation in the body of Christ, when there's intense things going on, that's all the more reason that we can come to the Lord and have the mind of the Lord. There already is a mind of the Lord. There's already God's will. There's already one thought process from the Lord. Uh, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he will give it liberally. God is not yes and no, but all of his promises are yes and amen. But let not us ask for that wisdom, doubting, for we'll be like the waves tossed in the sea if we're double-minded. So what I'm saying is absolutely for your life personally, for our life as a church, for any church, for any group of Christians together, there is one mind of the Lord for decisions that need to be made. And if those people, women, men collectively humble themselves before the Lord and seek the Lord sincerely, they will receive from the Lord the mind of the Lord. That's what the psalmist David had in mind when he said, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you desires of your heart. In other words, if we make the Lord our delight individually, collectively, he will align our heart with the compass of his will in our life and we will naturally come together. And we will be unified. It could be like the book of Acts chapter 15 when there's all the division over um, do you give your do you have faith in Jesus, but now you need to become a Jew, so you have to be circumcised and keep the law? Do you go backwards? So is there one gospel for Jews and another for Gentiles? And Peter himself stood up prior to this letter and he said, Look, man, you know 
that our fathers couldn't carry that yoke of burden. Why are we going to go backwards? And Paul would write about the same time. There's neither male nor female in Christ Jesus, but all are one in, in the Lord. There's neither free nor slave. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in the Lord. One mind, one baptism, one faith. There's one mind of the Lord. So when Peter says here, be of one mind, he's saying, look, you seek the Lord in your time and you can work together with others who seek the Lord and there's great things that can be done. There are certain organizations, Christian organizations, you would love to be involved with, like Samaritan's Purse. Like, don't you think there's a high level of people that are spirit-filled and spirit-led in the Samaritan's Purse upper management? For sure. You just can't be that fruitful if you're divided in your heart and you have division and petty stuff between people. Petty people destroy fruitful ministries. Pettiness, backbiting, division, gossip, slander, jealousy, malice. They'll destroy anything and everything, whether it's in the church or outside the church. But the difference of outside the church and the church is we already have a unity in faith. We already have unity. So we're not trying to manufacture or build something like some new entrepreneurial enterprise to create something that doesn't exist. We're coming from what exists. It's like I talk about, I don't hope for victory in Jesus. I come from victory in Jesus because the cross is total victory. Well, we're missing the cross right now, but that's where I always point to the cross. But the cross is total victory. It's not a tie or a maybe. It's an absolute. All your promises are yes and amen. But for the world, so in the church, we wake up. We have unity. We come together. We do a church service. Collectively, the leadership has unity. We're, we're just endeavoring to maintain what's already in place. This is why the world's so difficult. The world doesn't have this unity. The world's trying to find unity in establishing a restaurant chain and building the brand, marketing the brand, selling the brand, expanding the brand. The world's trying to come together to accomplish human government with fallen people devoid of the Lord in almost all cases to some degree or another, or false religious systems dictating the worldview like Sharia law would be with Islam. Extreme Islam, Sharia law would be That's a government standard devoid of the gospel of grace that we're reading about right here in this passage. They're trying to find a unity. ISIS was trying to create, you know, the Islamic state there in the Middle East based upon Sharia law. But that's not based upon a gospel of love and grace. And so that's not something God's going to honor. It's something people are going to fear. The third right was an attempt to unify and control the world under the superior Aryan race as Hitler defined it and the Third Reich and the Nazis and all those defined it as well. So whether it's conquering like Genghis Khan or, or Hitler or Mussolini or, or Stalin or Lenin or any of those people, that's a, they're trying to come together for a common cause to accomplish something to take and control whatever, a big government, or they're trying to build a new enterprise and business or um, it could even be as simple as a real estate business is trying to come together and sell lots of houses so everyone's happy and the business is thriving. As I talked about with Joe Gibbs Racing in North Carolina, their core values go fast and win races. And they've gone from 16 volunteers to 600 employees with a Christian worldview in their company. And they have four major cars on the NASCAR, on the main NASCAR circuit. But even so, when you work at Joe Gibbs Racing, you might be influenced by the gospel, but you're not unifying your decisions based upon a unity that's already in place. You're trying to agree together collectively how the organization should be run. And your portion. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is this. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we can have perfect unity with God 
individually with an undivided heart. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we can have perfect unity in our marriage with an undivided heart. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we can have perfect unity in the local church as we esteem others more important than ourselves and we consider one another and stir up love and good works. Because the unity is already there. We just got to get the flesh and the dust and the humanity out of it to get right to the core value of what the church is. It's Christ magnified, Christ the preeminent one, having his will in each and every individuals' lives, and they function together in the local church. So when Peter says to have of one mind, he's saying, you guys are, how are we going to have one mind? Because we're going to love one another. We're going to be courteous. We're going to think of others, and we're not going to be bitter or malicious or resentful. Look how he backs it up. All of you, be of one mind having compassion. The opposite of compassion is to be like indifferent. I was reading about Saul and Samuel today. What a contrast in the Old Testament. But what stood out to me is Saul was totally indifferent to everything. It was by the time he got deep into his ministry as a king, it was just all about Saul. Oh, the people did this. And oh, bless me in front of the people. You know, don't let me be embarrassed in front of the masses. What a true politician, right? Bless me in front of the people. We don't want bad Twitters going out about me. And this, uh, this is a bad look right now. You, you know, my, your robe in my hands. He, he, he didn't care about the people. He didn't care about obeying God. Everything was religious to him. Oh, but I did do what the Lord told me to do. No, you didn't. But what about Samuel? You know that, that chapter ends, chapter 15 of 1 Samuel ends with Samuel weeping for Saul. Weeping for the king that God had rejected. That's compassion. That's compassion when you have the worst boss in the world that's the center of his universe and you know God has shown you he's completely rejected this man and it's bad news for him and it's bad news for everybody in your country. And it says Samuel no longer went to see Saul from that point on, but he wept for Saul. That's compassion. When you weep for people who make bad decisions, when you weep for people who are outside God's will, when you look upon people who've destroyed their lives and you have compassion and empathy. And you care. Actually, talked to my sister today. It turns out yesterday was the one-year anniversary of her being sober. It was yesterday. And one-year anniversary of being sober. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a big deal if you've lived on the streets for six years with a grocery cart. That's a big deal. One year being sober. And, uh, but she was sad because one of the girls in her halfway house who had almost reached a year fell off the wagon and went out drinking a week ago. And they booted her from the crash program. And she was Barbie's best friend in this house. And Barbie's just crushed. She's recovering from a knee surgery she needed to have my sister 10 years ago. The leg's all lame from dragging around on the streets as a homeless person for six years. Major reconstructive surgery, ACL, MCL, all of it just rebuilt. And uh, minimal painkillers for obvious reasons being regulated by people who are over her for obvious reasons. Four weeks to think about what's next in her life. But she was so sad about her friend. And she said, pray for Beatrice. So, Lord, we lift up Beatrice to you right now that she would not give up, but get right back on track and do the right thing. That's compassion. And by the way, aren't broken people the most compassionate? Like, people have never been broken. They're like, what's wrong with you? Fix it. Are you been broken? When you've been crushed, you have empathy on people who have been crushed. When you've been broken, you have empathy and compassion on people that are broken. We're broken people. Eight billion broken people. Just 
compassion. We don't ever want to lose compassion. And if we haven't attained to compassion, that's an area in our life that we want to grow with the ministry of the Holy Spirit work in our life, that we would look upon people and be compassionate. I don't give money to every homeless person I see, but I definitely have more compassion than I ever did before my sister was on the streets yelling at streetlights at 7 in the morning, pushing a grocery cart around out of her mind. I don't feel obligated to give. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but I definitely have compassion. I can tell you what, I don't say, I don't think get a job or anything like that. I just think, Lord, help that person, man, because who wants to end their life like that? You know, like, who won't have compassion? The way we have compassion is we pray for people and we begin to see them the way God sees them. That's how we have compassion for one another. And we are to have love as brothers and we are to be tenderhearted and courteous. The opposite of a tender heart is a hard heart, right? Tender heart's the opposite. Life will beat you up and test your heart. So the question is, will you have thick skin and a tender heart or a hard heart and thin skin? Some people are really thin skinned and hard hearted. They just blow off the top and blow their gasket so quickly. And and they're just so defensive and they're thin-skinned and hard-hearted. The great minister Chuck Swindoll said, the most important thing you can ever have as a pastor is thick skin and a tender heart. Because you got to take it because you're on a death sentence, a death to your flesh and your pride. And as you are crucified through the experiences of leading the flock of God, and being Christ's shepherd underneath the chief shepherd, you can never become hard-hearted to those who hurt you and do ill against you. And there's nothing more hard to watch than a minister in ministry who is thin-skinned and hard-hearted. And I've seen them. And there's nothing more beautiful than a minister who is tender-hearted and thick skin. And my pastor, Brian Broderson, fits that building to a T. He's got thick skin, and he's got a tender heart. And that's an example I look to. That's how I want to be, and that's how we all should be. The one mind of Christ does not change. We just need to clear that which is fogging it and be firmly planted on it and you get five people together who have the mind of the Lord, love, brotherly love, compassionate, tender-hearted. Then you get 10 and then 50. Then you have the dynamics of the fruitful church. And I got to say, I praise the Lord. I get to pastor a church like that because I do. I do. This church has done a great job of maintaining the unity of the spirit and having one mind and serving the Lord. So giving, so loving, so self-effacing, self-effacing. It's been just such a blessing to lead this church. Because the, the contrast of being of one mind and being compassionate and loving and tender-hearted and courteous, that is thinking of others, think of others. This is, again, what Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 2, think of others before yourself. Just, if you can just do that, your life's going to get a lot better. But because in verse 9, not returning evil for evil. Because if you don't, what happens is you get vindictive and you get bitter and you get angry and you want to get back. Then you want to return evil for evil. Like someone does you evil, you want to do evil back. There's so many proverbs about this. Any fool can, 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 wrath, can shout wrath back at someone else. 
I mean, it, it takes no effort to just yell back at someone else. It takes no effort to just be in the flesh and be a fool and to say things you shouldn't say. That takes no effort. That's what people do. It takes no effort to, to be vindictive and malicious and to want to get back. You know, when the law says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in the Old Testament, that was a restraint. Because generally speaking, if someone knocks out my tooth, I don't want to just knock out their tooth. I want to knock out two teeth. I don't want to just, I just want, I'm not playing for a tie. We're not looking for equality here. We're looking for an upper hand. Because that, in our mind, we've been wrong. So just them being just as wrong as us is not the equal. We shouldn't have been wrong in the first place. Therefore, they should endure more wrong than the wrong they've inflicted on us. And that's why God in his law says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's a limit. It's not a green light to um, punish people. It's a limit on the human nature to be vindictive and to be unrestrained. And where does it end? Like, it, it can... It takes a godly woman, it takes a godly man to stop the cycle of reviling, of evil, of vindictiveness and bitterness. It takes a woman of God who has spent time with the Lord to just let it go and give it to the Lord. It takes a man of God to say, you know what? Let God be true and every man a liar. He'll, he'll straighten this out later on. He'll straighten this out. And we talk about, I believe, the greatest equity that we can have spiritually is forgiveness. I do believe that's the greatest equity. And I've often said purity is a great equity with the Lord. Of course it is. Um, suffering is a great equity with the Lord. I've mentioned this before. Like, you just know when you're around someone who has suffered greatly, they've, they've lost loved ones, they've been through difficult times and trials, you just sense it. It's kind of like a, like a Star Wars movie. You just know you're hanging around a super Jedi. You just know that this person has incredible Jedi skills, but they're super humble. That's how people are, and it's not the best analogy, but you can relate to it. That's how people are who have equity through suffering. They just have it. Jeremy Camp walks in a room, and he buried the bride of his youth four months into their marriage, and he has this equity that people can't, it's like, oh, what is about this guy? Like, and John Corson burying his daughter, 16-year-old daughter, burying his first wife. Bobby, what he's been through with his parents and his sister, the equity of suffering is powerful. It's a value if it works for good in your life. It gives you value. It gives you super skills, if you will, in ministering to humanity. Because when someone says, you don't know how I feel, and you can say, oh, yes, I do. Not that you have to. Because when you have that kind of value, you don't even need to say it. You're just like, no, well, let's just pray. Well, you don't know what it's like to lose a baby. That's all right, but let's just, let's just pray. I don't need to say I've lost a baby. See, that's part of the value of the equity. You just have it, and you minister. If someone says, you don't know what it's like to be left by your spouse, and maybe you do know what it's like. And you know, you say, oh, I do. You say, let's just, let's just pray. Let's pray for you. Let's pray for the situation. That's the equity of suffering. And then there's the equity of purity. It's a great power. Purity is power. It's a powerful thing when people walk with purity before the Lord. It's a fairly rare thing, too, but it's a powerful thing because the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and he's going to establish holiness in our life to be set apart. So there's great power. Like when, back when Phil Wickham was 17, 18, 19, and all those girls were just like, ah, and he just was so set apart for the Lord. There was just like he tilted the room with the power of purity in his life. But that other equity is the forgiveness and letting go. How many times from Genesis to Revelation does God 
teach us to forgive others and let it go and give it to the Lord. And what a powerful equity it is when we don't need to return evil for evil, but we can let it go. When we don't have to get the last word in, but we can just let it go. When we don't have to defend this injustice or come against it in our life, but we can just give it to the Lord. Listen, there's nothing crooked that's not going to be made straight by the Lord in eternity. Every injustice will be made right. That's why it's really good to wake up and say, Lord, let me be on the side of justice and what's right. (laughs) You know, if you wake up and say, Lord, let me seek your righteousness today, that's a really smart prayer. Let me walk in your righteousness. That's a really smart prayer because there's less surprises in eternity when you do that. But if we deceive ourselves into thinking we're doing good things and we're doing evil things, then we're in for a shocker when we get to heaven and we give an account. Not returning evil for evil is the mark of great Christian maturity. Not reviling when reviled is the mark of great Christian maturity. It is the mark of depth of character and is is just such a great equity when you don't have to return evil for evil. Because if you return evil for evil, it escalates. What did Jesus say? Hey, listen, resolve this before you go before the judge. And even this week, I've been dragged into something that's been unfolding for a year and a half that is so gnarly and so ugly, involving parents and kids and superstar athletes. And it's just at so many junctures where it could have been diffused and resolved. And now it's escalated to such an intense level where it's headed for a court of law. And it could have been, there were so many exits. But you can get off at this exit. You can get off at that exit. Don't go to the city of wrath because no one wins. And where that journey's taking them, they are all going to lose. No one's going to be a winner if that all goes to court. And it looks like it's going to. No one's going to win. And it's really sad to have watched it. Anyone can rage with wrath, but the wrath of man produces not the righteousness of God. Humility, brokenness, trusting God. Let God be your defense. Because look at verse 10, 4, now, now quoting from Psalms. It's like, a, it's like a buffet of Psalms. It's really cool. It's a great cluster of verses. So just let it go. Like, be of one mind. Don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Yes, on the contrary, you're called to this. Inherit the blessing from doing the right thing and giving it to the Lord. Because for the woman, the man who, who does that, who, who would love life and see good days. Don't you want to love life? Let's, come on, WG, look at me. Look at me. Ojos in me. Eyes on me. Don't you want to just love life? Like, don't you want to enjoy life? Like, enjoy the journey? Hashtag enjoy life. Hashtag enjoy the journey. Hashtag love life. Don't you just want to love life? Well, he says here, he who would love life, she who would love life, and see good days. Don't you want good days? Man, I want good days. I want good days. Oh, how's it going today? It's a good day. How good of a day is it? It's a real good day. I want good days. David would say to us, taste and see that the Lord is good. And because God is good and he's good all the time, he's going to give you good days. Now, there's bad days. David's son made that very clear, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3. And we know that. That's the reality of life. 
But I'm just going to say, if you want more good days than bad days, you've got to forgive and let evil go from other, others against you and not have to revile and defend yourself. You want to love life and see good days, then you will refrain your tongue and your lips from speaking evil. That's what you're going to do. That's what we're going to do. You're like, oh, it's a good day. And then something happens like, oh, it could be a bad day. And then all of a sudden, there it is. You know, like James talking about the tongue. It's an unruly thing. It's, it's ready to start a fire. It's like, oh, oh, and the Lord's like, good day, bad day, good day, bad day, good day, bad day. Which is it? Walk away, good day. Open your mouth, maybe bad day. Right? Get the last word in or not. Get the last word in, Ooh, bad day. Let it go, good day. Good day. Walk away. Good day. Go back to the car. Hey, it's a good day. Turn on a good station. Oh, there's that song you like. Oh, the reckless love of God. Good day. It's a good day. Happy day, right? Bad day. You're angry, and then you just might as well turn on something angry, like no, 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 from the 70s or something. Oh, those bad days. I'm not just going to go. I'm going to listen to bad day music because it's a bad day because I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to return reviling for reviling and evil for evil. Bad day. You know, it's like, no, no, good day. Happy song. Happy day. Good feeling, you know? It's like finding Nemo, the first one, happy feeling, happy feeling's gone, right? And it's like, no, we want the happy feeling all day. We want to be gone. It's like, when we have to, evil for evil, reviling for reviling, that's, gonna, that's, that's not going to be good for your life. That's not going to be a good day. We need to refrain our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. That's the key to a good life. Who would love life and see a good day, refrain our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. Verse 11, let him or her turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Man, isn't that like a happy thought? This just makes you feel good. It's like a warm fuzzy, WG. Yeah, let him turn away from evil and do good. Oh, we could do this. That's evil. But you know what? Let's just do this because this is good. Whatever a man or woman sows, they're going to reap. But if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap destruction and corruption. If we sow to the spirit, we reap life. Let's, let's reap life. Let's reap good things. The seed we sow is the, is the tree we're going to grow. And it's a fruit we're going to taste. It's going to, be, it's going to be in our grove. Turn away from evil. Do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And if we wake up and we go about our day and we are one mind with the Lord and we are compassionate and merciful and filled with brotherly love and we, we don't have to avenge ourselves and we, we have mercy toward people and we're like, it's because we're going to inherit the blessing and it's a good day. And we love life, and we don't have to get the last word in, and we turn away from evil, and we choose to do good. We're going to seek peace and pursue it, and our life is going to be blessed. There are so many people that seek, they go from conflict to conflict. It's wrath about this. It's wrath about that. It's negativity about this. And it's, it's just all this wrath and confusion and turmoil. There are people we all know who, if you, you, you see them coming, you don't want to be with them. In five minutes, they've unloaded wrath, negative stuff, and just turmoil you got to know those people. There's plenty of them. You don't want to be that person. We don't be like, oh, peace instead of turmoil. Order instead of chaos. It's a soft answer. It's all good. Words of life. 
instead of words of wrath. It's just, that's how it can be. That's how it can be because the exhortation is to do it. So again, Old Testament passages from Psalms written by David, the man after God's own heart, applied in the New Testament through the Holy Spirit. Let us turn away from evil. Let us seek peace and pursue it. Pursue peace. Okay, this is a difficult situation, and I'm really upset about this situation. And, I'm, uh, and someone's like, are you just going to let them walk away right now? Are you going to let them get away with that right there? Like, let's, You can always revisit something later on. You can always pretty much sit on an email for a day and then go back and look at it and decide whether or not you really want to send that. You can always... Those that wait on the Lord renew their strength and mount up with wings like eagles. You know, like, generally speaking, when it comes to you being upset and wanting to say something or avenge yourself, almost always waiting is a safer option versus retaliating or speaking. For in the multitude of words, what's not lacking? Sin. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Me and Jeremy, we've been working together with the Lord for a long time since he showed up cleaning up the sanctuary at Costa Mesa in the early 2000s. And I love to do documents with Jeremy because we'll be like, well, let's, you know, and we do, if we're doing a document, it's pretty serious. It's, it's an important document. And usually it's responding to something. It's like, but I've learned with Jeremy, I'm like, I'm like, my paragraph looks like this. And he's like, well, I think we can say that in one sentence. You know, Jeremy's really helped me with that. My wife's the same way. I'm like, I think I want to say all this. And they're like, well, maybe just say that. Yeah. Yeah. I send Jeremy like four bullet points, what needs to be said, and he sends, sends out one sentence. I'm like, yeah, that was a lot better. Thank you, Jeremy. And by the way, if you only say one sentence and everything you need to say, less is more, then you don't have to take anything back. Less likely. And someone says, what do you mean by that? Like, you mean my seven-word sentence? Like, what do I mean by my seven-word sentence? Like, I mean... I got an email of a complaint that was recently that was like, just, it was nonstop. It's like, I thought, did they exhale? It's just, next page. And they did this and they did that and they did, and they did this and they did that. It's like, whoo, man. It's someone else's jurisdiction. We'll forward it to the people who have to look into this stuff and investigate it properly. I just, less is more. Love life. Let it go. Seek peace, pursue it. Seek peace, pursue it. Wake up in the morning, seek the Lord, seek peace. Pursue the Lord, pursue peace. Conflict at work, be the peacemaker. Conflict in the community, be the peacemaker. Conflict in the water, be the peacemaker. Conflict on the freeway, be the peacemaker. It's all just exhale and get perspective What's going on here? Whenever you see like road rage clips, you just think like, what happened? Or someone just went nuts. Just out of their mind. Well, they just, it's unrestrained. The, the beauty of being governed by God is he'll restrain you. Human government exists for people who aren't governed by God, by and large. If you're governed by God, the New Testament tells us, you'll have very little trouble with human government in most situations. And if you do, there's a blessing in it, which is the context of this letter. Self-government before the Lord is great government. And you'll love life and you'll see good days. And then it says, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord 
are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. For the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So God sees us. He knows. His ears hear our prayer. He hears us. God sees what's going wrong against you from other people or just in general. We're coming up on the passage in Luke on Saturday nights where Jesus says that he knows the hairs on our head. He knows the details. God is in the details. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He sees us. And his ears are open to our prayers. He hears us. And his face is against those who do evil. So we give it to the Lord. He sees us. He hears us. And his face is against those who do evil. He will make things straight. He'll be your defense, your advocate. We read on in verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats nor troubled. Again, quoting the Old Testament from the book of Isaiah. So Peter's just pulling with the Holy Spirit, pulling from Old Testament scriptures of principles for our lives. If, if we're a follower of what's good and we suffer for righteousness sake, we're blessed. That's what Jesus said. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake and blessed are you when we're persecuted for his name. I don't know if any of you are going through stuff like this, but we can go through stuff like this. And I think about this. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. You know, this is a subtle thing of the devil. Like, oh, you better watch out. You know, someone gets in like, hey, man, when they find out about this, or like, fear is powerful with the devil. It's the opposite of faith, of course. So faith, Christ is on the throne. Fear, uh uh-oh. It's a big uh uh-oh moment, right? And the Holy Spirit tells us here, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. You're doing what's right at work. You're doing what's right in the family. You're doing what's right in community. Someone's like, oh, you better look out, man. You're, there's an investigation. There's an internal investigation. They're going to find out what you do. Like, like what? Like I involve people? I encourage people? Like what exactly are your threats about? You know, like. Think about Jesus. He just, they tried to stick all these false accusations on him. And he just, he committed himself to the Father. Verse 15 tells us, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, reverence, having a good conscience that when they defame you as an evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer from doing good than for doing evil. So we talk about having the mind of the Lord. We're, we've Spend time with the Lord. We sanctify. We set aside the Lord apart in our hearts. And we're ready to give a defense. You know, there's a very famous scripture about being able to defend the faith and stuff like that. But really, you know, it's just like we can explain why we have a hope. The world's trying to find unity for some objective that's more often than not temporal. We're coming from a unity that's established for all eternity with kingdom purposes. We have hope. This might not have any hope. It, it, it wouldn't. Jesus is a, an anchor of hope to the soul. The world is passing and all the glory of man with it as the f- grass of the field that withers and fades away. Already quoted in this book. So we have the Lord in our hearts. People are like, why are you, like, how can you deal with that with that way? It's the Lord. Acts 1.8 is we are his witnesses. And more often than not, our witness comes not from what we're saying or even what we're proactively doing, but our witness comes in how we respond to adversity and how other people treat us or even how we handle trials and tribulations. That's where the witness comes in. My best friend that I grew up with, he had a son the same time we had our son. 
And our son died and his son lived. My friend from Carlsbad. I was trying to serve the Lord. He wasn't trying to serve the Lord. And I just could not. That was a tough one for me. Like to not have our son and see. Yeah, that was just a really, that was a hard one. But as time went on, we really weren't friends that much any longer because we just went different directions. He'd gotten married and they had a child and we'd gotten married and we were in ministry and doing stuff. But I'll never forget about two years later, he came up to me and said like, he was talking about how he was going to church and growing in the Lord. And he said that the, the defining factor in that entire experience in his life was when he saw how we handled losing our son. And he said in his own mind he thought it was so unfair that he got to keep his son when he wasn't trying to serve the Lord. And we lost our son when we were trying to do everything right before the Lord. There's always a bigger picture. And God had a plan in that. And you know, years later I went down to Carlsbad to watch his son play in a CIF baseball game as a senior. Right there at Carlsbad Field where I went to high school, the Lancers. You just never know. It's how we respond or not respond that often is the great witness. Not the proactive, but how we conduct ourselves. We can tell people the truth, but they want to see it, and they want to see it in reality with how we handle difficult things. And if people give us a hard time for our faith at work or in the community or in the family, and they call us evildoers and they mock us and this and that, what are you going to do? He says in verse 17, it's better in the will of God to suffer for doing good if that's what the way it is than for doing evil. I mean, if you're going to suffer, suffer for doing good, right? <laughs> you know, like, suffer for doing good. Like, oh, man, I'm suffering because these people hate me because I'm a Christian. But if you suffer for doing evil, then, like, you're just like anyone else in, in, in a prison somewhere, whether it's self-imposed or you're gone away to prison. Like, you're, you're an evildoer and you're suffering for doing evil. Like, there's glory in suffering for doing good. You can't go wrong. Verse 19, excuse me, verse 18, it says this. For Christ, he's our example, and we close with these thoughts. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. So see, he's the just one, we're the unjust. He suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, because God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit, by whom, that is Christ, also he went and preached to spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So we read in verse 18. Verse 17 says, okay, if we're going to suffer for doing good, that's a, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that because you could suffer for doing evil. So it's a good thing to suffer for doing good. And because Christ is our example, verse 18, he suffered, he did good to bring us to the Father, and that was an unjust suffering on our behalf for our sins. Now, here's this phrase that throws a, a lot of people off. This passage is almost the most misunderstood passage of the New Testament, one of them. And it says, but the key is when, past tense. So that Christ brought us to God, verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom, 
that's Christ, also he went and preached to spirits in prison who formerly were, past tense, disobedient during the time of Noah, the divine long-suffering. What's he saying? He's saying that in the days of Noah, when Noah was preaching, because remember, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The Bible tells us that. He preached a, a, a gospel message. And what we're saying here is Noah was persecuting his generation, and Noah preached the truth. He preached the gospel. And what he was preaching was the spirit of Christ. Now, throughout all the Old Testament, from the very first prophecy in Genesis 3.15, it's all about Jesus. And whatever message was preached, even, you know, X amount of days, Nineveh's gone, that's still the gospel. The gospel's in everything that was taking place in the Old Testament. And so what it's saying here is that in the Old Testament, when Noah was preaching, it was Christ preaching through him to that generation. And they were in prison, and they're forever in prison because they didn't believe the gospel message and the message of salvation that he offered them. So it's like us. We're going to not return evil for evil, reviling for reviling. And if people choose to believe, great, they're with us in the ark. But if they choose to reject it, well, then it's tough for them. But we're going to be in the ark. We're going to be Hebrews eleven six, where the saving of our household through faith going in the ark. I think that's 5 and 6. Noah, for the saving of his household. So it's a tricky verse, but the simplicity of it is Noah was preaching Christ. That's the simplicity of it to his generation. And his generation was just as much in prison as our generation's in prison before the Lord. And that generation came and went, and there, you know, for unbelievers, this is the lake of fire. We did start the year with Revelation. And for all the unbelievers around us, it's the lake of fire. And there's no getting out of that. It's appointed to men to die once, and then the judgment. So as we look at this passage, that's the idea behind it, that Noah preached to a generation that didn't believe, and that's their choice. And whether or not our generation believes or doesn't believe, that's their choice. But what we do, what we believe, is our choice. And we want to be like Noah on the ark, saved, as you will. And that baptism of the Holy Spirit being born into the body of Christ and the water baptism, because it could be either or, depending on how people interpret this, it identifies us with Christ. And we just had water baptism this week, this weekend, where the kids went down and they come out. It represents that new life in Christ of what Christ did for us, that he cleanses us of our sins, he gives us a good conscience toward God, literally, and it's through our faith in him by which we're saved. The gospel is Christ crucified according to the scriptures. The gospel is Christ risen from the grave according to the scriptures. And our water baptism, as Broderick shared on the beach on Sunday, represents us dying in Christ, with Christ, and being raised up in the newness of life that Christ gives us. And so our life is a testimony in our generation. And if we suffer for doing good, then that's just the way it works. Noah's generation rejected him, and they, they made their choices. And our generation might reject us, and they make their choices. But really, the focal point, I believe, when we think about this passage and bring this all together, is we have a new life in Christ, and we have hope, and we have faith, and we come from unity and the mind of the Lord, and we can just carry that over in everything we do right there in our home, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our workplace, and what we do. And the world is trying to find a unity of how to build a house and all the contractors work together to finish a house or how to do this or how to do that, whatever. And it's like, it's temporal in, in many cases. You know, I mean, believers can bring eternal into that. But everything God does in our life has eternal value. And so if we suffer for doing good, then it just has eternal value. Twice we're told in this passage 
at least twice, that we're given a blessing when we let evil go that's against us and we receive the blessing. We're going to inherit a blessing. Verse 9, there it is. It's like, it's a blessing to let it go. So, I don't know, I think of Noah preaching for 120 years that's implied to his generation. And sitting for a week waiting inside the flood for things, inside the ark waiting for things to begin. I think you might feel like as a failure as a minister. 120 years of altar calls. And you couldn't convince one neighbor to get on the boat with you. But his wife and children were there. And it's in the book of Hebrews, his faith. He built that ark and he invited everybody to come. And it was a real ark and it was a global flood and it was God's wrath on this planet. And the whole planet was completely changed. The ice age, all this stuff came after the flood. And we are descendants of Noah through one of his three sons and his offspring, straight back to Adam. That's who we are. And his faith is our legacy to just let it go and stay on track and build what he's called us to build, let go what we need to let go, and just be faithful. Amen? Amen. Lord, we...